welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. And we're here to talk about the last 100 kilometers of our Camino, the Camino Portugues Interior, and then subsequently the Camino Sanabres. And certainly the beginning of the last 100 kilometers didn't quite go according to plan. No, it did not. We definitely had a setback and weren't really sure exactly what was going to happen. But in the end, we at least did make it to Santiago. So I was very happy about that. And all is well that ends well. Yeah, so last time we left you with the forecast that it was going to be raining quite a lot in the coming subsequent days, and we were a little bit apprehensive about walking in the rain for four days. It turned out we didn't do that at all, uh, because the next morning I woke up and wasn't feeling that well and tested positive for COVID. Yeah, which meant that we weren't going to be walking for a while at least. So uh, that happened while we were in Orense. It was probably rather fortuitous that we were in a city and so, you know, we had lots of facilities available to us. It wasn't hard to get food and things like that. And we could rent an apartment. You know, uh, there was plenty of different kinds of accommodation available and not just an albergue. Uh, So, yeah, we rented an apartment for a few days and well, we were already in the apartment, but we extended our stay there. And yeah, you just isolated and I mostly isolated too. Um, but I did go out occasionally to buy food and to go to the library. Fortunately, I'd brought my library card, my Galician, actually from Orense library card that I had, you know, got when I had stayed in Orense last year. And so I read a lot of books in Galego and, um, yeah, we just chilled out for a while and it wasn't too serious. You didn't have really bad symptoms or anything. No, it was very mild. Uh, Basically the day before I had just felt a little bit of a... A tingle in the back of my throat and so I started taking some some cough drops and then I slept badly that night and then I decided to take the test the next morning and in fact we had a self-test with us because you had taken one a couple of days earlier because you'd felt not too well but then you took one and it was negative mm-hmm. um, but we, we had bought two just in case uh, so we had an extra one and then I took the test and actually when when the 15 minutes was up and I went to look uh, at the actual thing that tells you the results where you're looking for you're hoping to get one line and not two lines and from a distance I could only see the one line and I said oh it's negative and then I sort of went up a little bit closer to it and there was a faint line um, to indicate that it was positive Um, but it was very mild basically that day I was low on energy uh, quite low on energy really but that was about it and the cold never really came usually for me you know I get a sore throat and then it develops into a runny nose and and etc and that didn't really come so the first day I didn't have any energy. I didn't leave the apartment at all. It was quite funny to look at the chart that I have or the graph on my phone showing steps because when you're on the Camino, you do a lot of steps and we don't walk as far as some people on a given day, but we can get up to about 40,000 steps uh, on some days. And that day, my steps were 40. (laughs) not 40,000 but 40 Uh, and that was basically just going from the bed to the bathroom and and back again and that was about it then the next day I felt quite a bit better and then the third day I felt normal uh, but we stayed in Orense the fourth day we stayed again and I felt completely normal and so then by the fifth day um, we decided to keep going basically the rules in Spain uh, at this time were that 
if you had mild or no symptoms, you didn't even have to isolate at all. And yes. that's what my symptoms were. They were only ever quite mild. And then after two days, it was nothing at all. Um, and so, you know, we decided to isolate because we just thought it was the right thing to do. And I wouldn't have wanted to have walked that first day. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, either from a, a moral perspective of, of maybe uh, spreading the virus and also just from a physical perspective because I, I was really low on energy that day. But probably, certainly from a physical perspective, I think on the third day I could have walked, but we decided to wait it out and it meant that we waited out those four days of rain and then we started walking on the fifth day um, instead. Yeah, so that worked out pretty well. I mean, there was a point where we had thought, okay, well, our original plan was to walk to Mushia, to continue to Mushia after Santiago. Once you came down with COVID and we knew that we were staying at least another extra day or two in Orense, that meant that the Mushia plan was no longer an option, but that we could, you know, still make it to Santiago, hopefully. And so then, since we knew that, you know, we weren't going to have those extra four days or whatever they were of walking at the end, there didn't seem to be much point in starting and going back out into the rain and starting to walk if we, that we were just going to end up in Santiago earlier than we needed to be there. So yeah, we kind of waited out the rain and also waited out COVID at the same time and then got a fresh start. And it, well, yeah, I, I thought it was really nice after that. I really enjoyed it, the rest of the Camino. Yeah, and there's just one last point there was that we had, before we'd started the Camino, we had considered starting our CPI in Quimbra, which is an extra four days to Viseu. And then just given the time constraint that we had, that would have meant going to Santiago and not having this time to go to Mushia. And in the end, we opted to do these four days at the end to Mushia instead of at the beginning. And it turned out, after I had tested positive, that that was, that was a good decision. Because if we had started in Quimbra and the same thing had happened, we didn't have those extra days built in at the end. Yeah, and that was one thing that we had considered when we decided, you know, what the plan was going to be. Not necessarily that we thought one of us was going to catch COVID, but just we know that things can go wrong on a Camino and we thought maybe we should build in a little bit of a cushion for whatever might happen along the way. Yeah, and so in the end, as you said, all's well that ends well. Um, the very the very beginning out of Orense, as soon as you leave Orense, there's a big climb of about 400 meters. So I was thrown in right into the deep end, um, but it was fine. I mean, it was a slightly difficult climb, I think, for everybody who does it. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but I was okay, and then I knew that you know I was fine to continue. But before that, it did well sort of give us an opportunity to stay in Orense. I didn't really uh, do much or, or leave um, the accommodation very often. But you actually had spent a month in Orense last year. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the seven cities of Galicia. It's one of the larger ones, I would say. I feel like it's not as big as Vigo, no. but it, it's bigger than Pontevedra and Santiago and, and Lugo, which are all quite small in their way. Or that's just my impression that Orense is more of a major city than those three. That's interesting. I don't, I don't know, you know, what the stats are in terms of population or area or anything. I didn't have it in my mind that it was larger than Santiago, um, but it could be. I mean, I guess, you know, because I know Santiago is the capital, I also think of it as being perhaps larger than it is, but really the old town is pretty small. Yeah, it's definitely not as big as Vigo, and I imagine not as big as A Coruña, although we still haven't been to A Coruña. But yeah, it's bigger than Pontevedra for sure, let's say. But also has kind of a small town feel, you know, if you stick to just the old town, the old city center. 
Um, I mean, most of them are like that. Vigo, not really. Vigo is mostly modern. There's not much of an old town to it. But Santiago, Pontevedra, Orense, Lugo, um, they all have really nice uh, centers. You know, the old town does feel like a small town, really, uh, more than a big city. Yeah, so we had explored this a little bit together the day before I had tested positive because that was our rest day on our wedding anniversary. And then after that, yeah, I wasn't able to, to do or see much more. We did go to the cathedral um, on the last day before we left. But was it interesting for you to be back in Orense or did you discover anything new or different this time? Uh, it was nice to be back there, yeah. You know, I brought back memories um, and I was able to catch up with a couple of the people who I had met when I was there last year, so that was really nice. And we went to the cathedral, which is something I had never gotten around to doing when I was there previously. So, Well, you weren't a pilgrim then. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't a pilgrim. Well, maybe it was because I knew that there was a pilgrim discount and I thought uh, I might as well wait until I come back here as a pilgrim. All right, and so we're actually going to talk about the cathedral a little bit more uh, later on. But in any case, so we left for the last 100 kilometers uh, after overall spending six nights in Lorenzo, including the first two that we'd spent before the positive test. And then we continued on our way. And as we talked about last time, you know, we'd been on this alternate route of the Sanabres. And just before Lorenzo, it merges with the Sanabres proper. And then additionally, you have some people beginning the last 100 kilometers of the Sanabres. And some people still brand this as the Via della Plata, which also gives it a bit more uh, cachet, even though I think technically it's not really the Via della Plata at this point, but that's, that's um, neither here nor there, I guess. But basically the point is there were quite a few more pilgrims from mm -hmm. Orense, but still, you know, nothing on the kind of Frances or even Primitivo or Portuguese levels, um, but certainly far more than we had seen up to that point. Yeah, yeah, that's fair to say. Um, you know, we had seen none in, at all until we got to Verin, and then between Verin and Orense, uh, just a handful. And then, yeah, from then on, there were, it was definitely more regular and more expected. You knew that you weren't going to have the albergue all to yourself, for example, which is what we had experienced for most of the Camino up to that point. Yeah, so the first town that we stayed in, the first village that we stayed in, it's called Thea, C-E-A. And... Yeah, that's an example of that. We stayed in the albergue and it was reasonably full, I, mm -hmm. I guess. So there were, you know, there were quite a few uh, pilgrims there. And that was a really nice albergue. It had a really nice balcony and everything. And Thea itself was, was a lovely village. Um, there were lots of stone houses. There were orios, you know, inside the village. Um, there's this town square with this clock tower. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I think looking at the Sanabres as a whole, or the Sanabres that, that we know from Verín to Santiago, um, certainly Ayarit, which we talked about last time, was you know, of the small towns or the large villages, um, the, the most attractive or the most appealing. And then Thea, I think, was probably the second most for me. I liked it quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, I liked it too. It's famous for its bread. Uh, and there are, I can't remember how many ovens, bread baking ovens there, quite a few in the more than a dozen, I would say. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's a small, quiet town. There's not an awful lot to do, but just wandering around the streets is quite pleasant. Now, it's funny about the bread, though, because I've read several times in different brochures and things like that that it's world famous for its bread. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true because we hadn't heard of it or heard of its bread until we, you know, were planning for this Camino. And then actually the morning that we left, we were looking for bread. Mm -hmm. um, because we wanted it for, for our picnic lunch. But of course, the, the bread, the typical bread from Thea is these really huge loaves mm. and they're not convenient 
for pilgrims, let's say, and we were just kind of looking for a baguette or something like that, or some rolls or something that's easy to put in your bag. And they just had these huge, enormous, you know, heavy loaves of bread. And so in the end, we had gone, we had gone to this kind of local bakery, quite an unusual local bakery, like more like a house. Yeah, I believe it was inside the guy's house. And I guess we just followed signs to it. I don't know how we yeah, I think found you, it. I think it was on Google Maps and there were signs to it also. And we thought, oh, this will be great. We'll go and go to this really local bakery and get some of this famous bread. And then we saw the bread and we said, we can't carry this. And, and that's so, all he had. We asked, you know, do right. you have different sizes? And nope, it was just the one size. All the loaves were the same and they were really, really huge. Um, so yeah, we decided that it wasn't practical and we, we couldn't take one. Right. So we went back to the supermarket and got some bread that, that was more practical. But then later when we were, um, at the albergue, uh, later that day, we saw that some other pilgrim had gotten one of these, uh, really large loaves of bread. So they carried it, but we decided not to. And then the other thing, and really, I guess the most famous thing that is part of this last 100 kilometers of the San Andres, although technically not actually on the main Camino, it's on an alternate of the Camino, is this monastery of uh, Oseira. Mm -hmm. And we this was recommended to us by several people. It's a little bit, let's not say tricky, but in terms of your stage management, it's slightly inconvenient because from Orense to Thea is about 24 kilometers, I believe, 22 to 24, and then it's another eight or so to the monastery on this alternate and so that's a, a long day a 30 plus kilometer day and so especially coming out of me having COVID we didn't want to do that on the first day but we really wanted to stay at the monastery not just to visit it but there's an albergue there and you can stay there and so we decided we would just go to Thea and then the next day we would have a really short day of this eight kilometers or so to um, the monastery. Of course, we made it slightly longer than eight kilometers because we, or more to the point I, took the wrong route at one point. And so we followed the, the normal route rather than the uh, alternate route um, mm. because we just saw arrows and I just forgot that we were supposed to be following a different route. And then we were following arrows and we were saying, okay, this is fine. And then at a certain point you said, I'm not sure we're supposed to go through this village. Yeah, because I had read, you know, the different, both descriptions of both routes and looking back there were obvious warning signs that i should have picked up on previously like for example when we passed a bar and we knew that we weren't supposed to pass any kinds of food options uh the whole way there but we just thought oh there's a bar here we didn't know there was going to be a bar and uh, then we passed through another town which i'm sure i'd read the name of that town previously too but it didn't really register but for whatever reason the name of the second town did register i remembered reading that that was on the other route and so then i thought are you sure that we're on the right way? And you didn't realize what I was saying. You're like, what do you mean? Of course, we're, we're following the arrows. And I'm like, no, the way to Oseda? <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, no, we're not, we're not on that route. And so, I mean, in the end, you know, we went about three or four kilometers on, on this route, and then we basically found a, a, a path which was kind of an adventure of itself. We went through the forest to join up to the other route rather than retracing our steps all the way back to Thea and then continuing that way. So, okay, our eight kilometer day became, I don't know, 11 or something like that. Yeah, it wasn't a big deal because it was going to be this very short day anyway. So we had some time to kill and yeah, we, we had quite an adventure. Uh, it was all a grand plan, really. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was actually pretty fun making our way through through the forest. Another plug for maps.me, which I think we've mentioned before. We would not have been able to find that. I'm sure that those tracks would not have been, they wouldn't have shown up on Google Maps or maps.me I think is really the, the most thorough, exhaustive 
in terms of showing all the little walking trails. So that was how we were able to say, oh, look, it looks like there's a trail that will be a bit of a shortcut to get us back on to where we want to go. Right, because we had the GPS tracks both for the regular route and for the alternate, and so we could sort of see where we were and where we were trying to go. And yeah, as you mentioned, they have these dotted lines which indicate trails, and yeah, we were able to just uh, find our way through the forest. And so that was, yeah, a fun little side adventure. But it turned out, once we got to the monastery, that, that quite a few of the other pilgrims who had stayed in Thea had, this, had the same idea. And we didn't know if we would be the only ones doing this really short day, um, but there were, in fact, I think about eight of us or, or, or something like that. And then one person who came all the way from Orense, uh, who arrived later in the day after, after doing a big day. But yeah, it, w- it was then nice to get some continuity with, with these other pilgrims. And so we met these two French ladies and also a French-Italian couple. And so we spent a few days walking with them because we were doing the same stages. Uh, and so that was nice after, as you mentioned before, having only seen a couple of pilgrims, you know, in the... What, two, nearly three weeks before that. And the German guy as well. There was an older German guy who we didn't talk to much that day, but he was one of the others who was staying there at the monastery. And then we also ended up, you know, doing the same stages the rest of the way all the way to Santiago, so we ran into him several more times. So then that, w- that was nice to have a bit of a, I wouldn't say Camino family, but you know, to have this regular group of people that you recognized and kept running into. Definitely. And the monastery itself is, is well worth a visit. We were, I don't know if this is normal or not, but basically you have to go into it on a, on a tour and I think, you know, we had all arrived early because we had this short day, but the tour was going to be at five o'clock. Um, but then there was a, a, a large group of Spanish tourists of about 30, maybe, who were on the tour with us. So that was, it would have been nicer if it was just the, you know, eight pilgrims or, or whatever it was, rather than having the 30 uh, tourists. But it is what it is. Uh, if other people want to visit it, they're obviously more than welcome to. Sure, yeah. It definitely, you know, changed the atmosphere and the dynamic quite a lot. It was a very large group and, you know, with echoey hallways and stuff, it was kind of, it was quite difficult really to hear the guide. He was wearing a mask as well and um, it was all in Spanish, which, you know, I I can follow a, a tour in Spanish normally, but in those conditions, it was hard to catch everything. Yeah, just a lot of people, really. It was, it was probably too large of a group. And the other thing, we'll get back to the monastery in itself in just a second, but the other thing was then after we had finished this tour, we went back to the albergue, which is right next to the monastery, and then the group got brought in to look at the albergue <laughs> and look at the pilgrims. Yeah. And we felt like zoo animals just kind of sitting there on, you know, in the common area of the albergue, and the guy was saying, look, this is where the pilgrims stay, and, you know, they're kind of funny. They walk to Santiago, and they stay in places like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of weird. But yeah, the monastery itself, I mean, it was a bit more post-medieval than I had hoped for. You know, it sort of has medieval roots, but then most of what you see today is from the 16th century or so. The the interesting thing, I guess, was that the most famous part of it, or probably the most interesting part, was this room which is called, or known as this palm tree room because of the columns that go up to the ceiling and then they kind of branch off in this decoration that is supposed to resemble a palm tree. And the thing about it is this is Memeline architecture, which is from Portugal. And the architect of this particular room is the same as the architect of the Geronimus Monastery in Belém, uh, which is just outside Lisbon. And Belém is about six kilometers from our house in Lisbon. And we so, actually run there quite often. Well, it depends uh, how our running game is going, but that, that's our route anyway. Our jogging route is to run towards Belém and sometimes all the way to Belém. So it's a place we're very familiar with. Right. So it was on the one hand interesting to see this uh, style of Portuguese architecture that we've talked about on the podcast before uh, in Spain. On the other hand, 
yeah, to kind of come all this way and, and then see something that is that we can see and see in a in a better form actually very close to our house was um, well, it was also added something else to it, but. You know, there's quite a lot of cloisters and, and, and it's a functioning monastery and that was really the best part about it was that we had a tour from a monk and then later on once the Spanish group had left in the evening we were able to attend Vespers uh, in the monastery and that was really special. Yes, that was um, a much nicer experience I thought than the tour itself. Uh, again, the dynamic completely changed once the big group of tourists was gone and it was just pilgrims and the monks and there was only a handful of, of each. There were, what did we say, eight pilgrims, and I think probably about seven or eight monks as mm -hmm. well. And so it was a very intimate atmosphere in this tiny little chapel. They walked in with their robes, with their hoods on over their heads, and uh, were singing. It wasn't, you know, they weren't amazing singers or anything. Uh, it wasn't Gregorian chant, which I had read somewhere that it was. Uh, it was it was just singing um, you know, typical hymns, but I thought it was fascinating to get a glimpse into this monastic life and to see that a handful of people are still living this way today because it seemed like going back in time. Yeah, and there were a couple of the monks who were young-ish, let's say in their 40s perhaps, mm -hmm. or at least one who was maybe 30s or 40s. Yeah. Uh, most of the other ones were elderly, but there were at least a couple who hopefully will keep that tradition alive for you know a few decades more. Hopefully they'll get more novice monks coming in as well. And a final thing to say about Oseda is that the, the albergue that we stayed at is brand new. And there was an albergue there previously, and it was actually in the monastery complex, and it was in the old library. And that sounded like that would be great mm. uh, to us. But then we had talked to some other people who had stayed there, and they said it's dark and cold and musty and not really pleasant um, mm -hmm. in the old albergue. But that's now closed, and they've built this this building, which is next to the, the monastery. Uh, and so, it, you know, it's it's even it's a shunta albergue, but it's it's quite modern in it, in its approach and in the way that the beds are set up. And you know, there's a, a quite a nice common area with seating and lounges and things like that so if you've heard bad things about the monastery about mm. sorry about the albergue at Oseda maybe it's the older one and, and not the newer one so yeah we had a nice stay there yes yeah it was a very well equipped apart from the fact that there were of course no kitchen utensils and nothing to cook with which still blows my mind that you know they spend all this money installing this whole kitchen and yet don't give you any pots so it's pretty much worthless and there was a little bit of a panic surrounding that because there is one restaurant that's in the village opposite the monastery, but it was that was its day of closure for mm -hmm. that week. And we had discovered that the night before, I think, and, and told the other pilgrims in Thea who we knew were going to the monastery that you know, the restaurant that we were all planning on eating at wasn't going to be open. And so we had to do a bit of a supermarket rush in mm -hmm. Thea. But then, of course, yeah, we couldn't actually cook anything mm -hmm. uh, in Oseda, but we could, uh, you know, have uh, sandwiches and, and other cold foods for dinner. Yeah, and we had actually bought some soup at the supermarket and we're just kind of hoping that there might be a bowl that we can put it into to heat it up in the microwave. And there wasn't a bowl, but the hospitalero was aware of the issue and he's like, yeah, I don't know why they don't give you pots and, and plates. You know, you should, if you want, you can write a complaint and then they're, they're more likely to listen to you than they are to listen to me because I keep saying this and they don't listen. But he had actually bought with his own money, he had bought some paper plates and cups and things. So we were able to put our soup in one of his paper cups and heat it up in the microwave that way. 
And we <laughs> that did kind of explode a little bit inside the microwave. It did explode as well. a bit, yeah. But anyway, we got to eat, which was the important thing. And uh, I think it was probably good that we had mentioned to the others that the restaurant was closed because I think most people weren't aware of that. For the remainder of the last 100 kilometers, I think we had a slightly different uh, view of it. I think you enjoyed it more than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Well, you can start off by saying what you enjoyed about it. Yeah, I think it was clear that I was enjoying it more than you were. And I don't know if I can say specifically what I was enjoying. I was just enjoying the whole experience. I think I had gotten my second wind after the self-imposed break that we had in Orense. Then I felt quite refreshed and rejuvenated after that. And also knew that it was, you know, close to the end, that I, you know, this Camino was almost over. And so I wanted to really relish it and soak up those final moments as much as I could. Whereas you were in a different position because you know, knew that once we uh, arrived in Santiago, that was not the end of your Camino. You were going to be meeting up with our friend Darren and going on for quite some time. So I think you were perhaps kind of mentally checked out and just already looking ahead to what was coming next, whereas I was really trying to soak up everything because I thought it was the end. It turned out later that I did actually come and join you and Darren for the last four stages. And so I did do a bit more walking and I did walk into Santiago yet again just a couple weeks later, but that, that was not part of the plan at that time. So. I was just trying to revel in the experience and I, I really liked the experience of just walking through the villages. There was, I don't, there's nothing, you know, there's no like huge uh, historic landmark or anything that comes to mind that I was impressed by, but I just enjoyed the whole scenery, the rural landscapes and the villages and the walking and everything. Yeah, that's a really good attitude to have. And yeah, you, it does, your, your kind of mindset does greatly affect you know the way that you enjoy your your Camino and yeah for me I I like to be anchored in in these sites you know when we were in Orense and we were looking at the next few days we knew that the monastery was coming and that was sort of a big focus you know in the next couple of days and then once that was gone there was nothing else like that in for the remainder of, of the of the walk and you know it is true that it's often the little things that you enjoy the most, little moments, little interactions and things like that. But I just kind of looked ahead at the next three days and sort of maybe had pre-decided, well, there's not that much interesting stuff uh, Mm. coming up. And then I kind of maybe took that approach uh, into it. I mean, I I will say what, what happened right around the same time, which I thought was quite interesting, was that I saw something from somebody online who had just walked the last part of the Portuguese Camino and the Variante Espiritual uh, to Santiago. So they just walked from Vigo to Santiago. So right right around the 100 kilometer mark and loved it. And basically wrote this message saying, you know, what next for me now, for him and his wife, I think. He said, you know, we've just done our first Camino. We absolutely loved it. So, you know, we're looking for something else that's short, that ends in Santiago and that has these great natural and historic sites along the way. And You know, some other people wrote back and I wrote back saying, you know, if you look at the last 100 kilometers of the other Caminos, I don't really think you're getting what you got out of the Variante Espiritual, especially. And so I just kind of looked back as we were walking. I was just thinking about the last 100 kilometers of the Frances, the last 100 of the Primitivo, which includes the last 50 of the Frances, the last 100 of the Gaeta, and now the last 100 of the Sanabres, and I just felt that there weren't, yeah, these great highlights necessarily along the way. And once again, you make your own highlights on Camino, so that was a, a, maybe a fault of mine. 
But I feel like now having walked those five different routes into Santiago, that the Portuguese, including the Variante Espiritual, is really the, by far the most interesting of the last hundred kilometers. But maybe that's just my view. Yeah, I'd say that's probably fair to say. And I think in general, the last hundred kilometers of any Camino is going to be the, the least good, <laughs> the worst kilometers, the worst stages, because the, the atmosphere just seems to change a lot. And, and the towns that you go through do tend to get uglier. And I don't know why that is, but that is something that I noticed, even though in general I was enjoying the you know, the whole experience as a whole in the rural parts. And it, there were, I think, a lot of uh, rural parts and villages and just nice walking. But the larger towns uh, like Sierra and what was the other one? Uh, Bandeira. Bandeira. Yeah, they just don't have much appeal really at all. They're just ugly modern buildings and um, not huge towns, but but big enough to have facilities and have, you know, supermarkets and accommodation and so you end up staying there but then they're not actually very pleasant places to be. Yeah, I feel like this is a lesson that we keep having to relearn basically every Camino that we do. So yeah, we stayed in Sierra and then thought, well, why do we even, why do we stay here? Surely there was a nicer place we could have gone to. But yeah, the facilities are what kind of uh, draws you in. But then later on, we went through the town of Dornelas and there was an albergue there called Casa Leiras and it's run by an Italian woman. And we went in there just, to, it was in the morning, so we couldn't really stay there because we, it just didn't fit our stages. But we went and had a drink there and talked with her for a while. And that looked like a great place. We would have loved to have stayed there mm -hmm. and it was on the Camino but in a completely rural area but it was this you know old farmhouse and they'd done it up and it was just really atmospheric and, and looked like it would be really really homely and, and and a really nice little atmosphere yeah yeah definitely if we end up on the that trail again which I imagine we will if we walk the Via de la Plata for example or I don't know. I think there's something else that ends up uh, going th into Santiago. That uh, the Invierno also joins oh, on right. to that. Yeah. So, yeah, probably we will walk the, that stage once or twice again. And if so, I would definitely like to stay at that place. Um, yeah, it looked really beautiful. And uh, she was very welcoming. Uh, I believe she and her partner, husband, uh, run it together. We didn't get to meet him. But um, had I did read lots of nice things about great reviews about that place. And yeah, it looks like a, a really great albergue. And then for the final night before you reach Santiago, there are a few different options of places to stay. And we were going to stay in a town called Ponte Uya. And then we kind of got there and there's one albergue and then there's one private accommodation. And we, we passed the private accommodation first. So we just went in and asked them. And then I think they wanted more than, than what we were happy to pay or prepared to pay or, or we didn't yeah. we just didn't get a good vibe uh, out Both, of them. Both, yeah. The, the price was higher than I thought it should be. Um, and then also what really turned me off was there was a sign at the bar that said stamps for your credential are only for paying customers, that you can't just walk in there and get a stamp if you're not going to buy anything which I've never seen any business on any Camino do that before. And it just, you know, left a really bad taste in my mouth. I think that it, it didn't seem very welcoming to pilgrims. Yeah, I mean, usually on the last 100 kilometers, and especially on the Frances, 
it's the stamp that draws people in. Everyone's saying, everyone's putting up signs saying, we have stamps, we have stamps. And the idea is you mm -hmm. think, oh, I need my stamp, so I'll go in. And then you kind of get drawn in and you decide to buy something perhaps. Mm -hmm. But they're just trying to get you in the door with the offer of the stamp. Yeah, and, and I think that's a smart business move. Right, yeah. and they, these guys were basically saying, no, we don't really want you unless you're buying something. Yeah. And so then, you know, we thought about the albergue, but we decided, let's continue. And that was a really good decision because we went to a little village called Oteiru, and there's an albergue there. It's a Shunta albergue, and there were quite a few people there who had done the same. And it was just, it was just so nice to be in this small village and the albergue is on quite a large ground and there's lots of grassy areas where you can just lay out on. Uh, it was a beautiful afternoon. There are vineyards like right next to the albergue. And so that was really nice. And so, yeah, that was another one of those kind of light bulb moments where we, where we sort of thought, right, we should always continue to try, especially in the last hundred kilometers to stay in a place like this rather than in the towns, which you know, might be the stages given in a, in a guidebook or on Gronser or, or what have you, just because they're the larger towns with the facilities. Yes, and that is something that we did successfully, even on our very first Camino on the Frances. Uh, I remember that we did, you know, kind of go off stage and stay in smaller places that were not the places where most people were staying, and that worked really well. But yeah, we, um, we need to remember to, to keep doing that. Definitely. <laughs> The entry into Santiago was a new entry for us and it was really quite a good one in terms of arriving in Santiago and not really walking through much of the city at all. You know, when you're walking in Galicia, of course, when you see the mojones that indicate the direction, they're also giving you the kilometers. And so you walk into Santiago and it's getting less and less and less and finally it was down to three kilometers and we weren't in the city yet. And it was down to less than three, about two and a half and we started going past these houses which were kind of rural houses and it felt a bit like a village. And so it still wasn't suburbs, and it wasn't until one and a half kilometers from the cathedral that we hit suburbs. So it was just interesting, you know, because if you come on the Frances, for example, you go through that suburb or the barrio of San Pedro, which is actually a, quite a nice barrio for what it's worth, but you, you're, you're in the city for a lot longer before you get to the cathedral. So you kind of think, okay, we've arrived, but then you haven't really. Mm -hmm. And so of, of the different uh, entries to Santiago that we've done, this one was by far the shortest in terms of when you hit the city for the first time uh, until, you, until you get to the cathedral. So you've barely arrived and, and suddenly you're, you're almost at the doorstep of the cathedral. So that was really interesting. It was, yeah. I think that was, this was my favorite entry. And also emotionally, my favorite arrival. Uh, I've talked in the past about how, you know, the arrival in Santiago is usually bittersweet for me and, and emotions it brings up are overall more negative than positive, but I didn't have that this time for, for whatever reason. Yeah, well, I think the, it's an interesting point. I think the idea of it has, has changed for us. You know, the first time you're so excited, you don't know what to expect and all this you've walked for so long if you've walked something like the Frances as, as we did and Santiago you know has a lot to live up to and, and you know I, and I think I think Santiago is great I love Santiago mm. I just read today or yesterday somebody saying how they were so disappointed when they arrived in Santiago for the first time you know it does different things to different people but if you look at you know the three great pilgrimage Christian pilgrimage destinations of the Middle Ages you know the other two are Rome and Jerusalem Right. Um, and so Santiago is, you know, unfortunately, the let's say the poor cousin of, of those three. But, you know, for us now, I mean, this time was the fifth time that we'd walked into Santiago. It's like seeing an old friend. Exactly, and we yeah. do have some friends there as well. Mm. And it's nice to see them. And, and we're less thinking about the actual arrival than the spending of a couple of days afterwards and going back to some favorite places some restaurants and seeing some people and things like that. So I think the dynamic of it uh, has changed for us. And it's interesting that 
I saw again on the Camino de Santiago forums a couple of days ago, somebody was asking for, it's a bit of a long story, but they were going to do a, a, what they were calling a trial run Camino on the Portuguese. And the idea was that a year later or, or after that, they were going to do the full Frances. And so they were asking for tips for the Portuguese to do eight or 10 days of walking. And they specifically said, we do not want to walk into Santiago. We want to save this for when we do our full Frances. And there were quite a few responses. And most people were saying, you know, it doesn't diminish, uh, you know, the second or the third time or whatever it is that you walk into Santiago. You can still have a great experience doing that. And so people were basically saying, we don't think you need to save this. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just quite interesting to see the back and forth on that. And yeah, in, in our experience, yeah, maybe it is getting better and better and better. And it's perhaps not that, you know, that iconic view of the cathedral for the first time, although it was covered in scaffolding completely the first time that we did see it. But yeah, it's more just being in the city and enjoying it and discovering new little things about it as well. I just read also a couple of days ago um, a story about all of these game boards that are carved into stone throughout Santiago that I haven't noticed before, but apparently some of them are, are, are on the stones on the ground in quite prominent positions. And there are by far more in Santiago than, than in any other city, you know, in Galicia or in the region. And it's a little bit of a mystery as to why there are so many. But that's something that we can look out for next time. Yeah, yeah. I would. I definitely think that my relationship with Santiago, with the city, ha grows and, and deepens every time I go there. And yeah, it is like going back to see an old friend, like you said. And um, well, these last, this last time, this last two times actually that I walked into Santiago, we had beautiful weather, and so that definitely helped as well because other times it's been raining a lot. But seeing the city and being able to explore the city in you know with beautiful blue skies i just really fell in love with it i just you know i i really love santiago more than more than i ever have before and so yeah that definitely helps with the arrival emotions because i'm looking forward to being there and so we try to do something new if we can each time that we go and this time we went to see the portico de la gloria in the cathedral because I think this was the first time we've been there that it, that's been possible because it's been under restoration uh, in preparation for a whole year. It's possible last year already it was open, but I think after nearly 60 days, we were a bit too tired mm. uh, to enjoy it. But basically, this is essentially the entranceway to the cathedral uh, or the, the original entrance or just inside the entrance. Those entry doors are no longer open and you now access the cathedral from the from a different side. But the Portico de, Gloria, de la Gloria is a, a 12th century series of, of sculptures, of Romanesque sculptures, and it's you know a famous part of the cathedral, but it's kind of blocked off from the rest of the cathedral now, and you need to make a booking to do a special visit. And so we did that. And it's interesting that the in Orense, in the cathedral there, they have a very similar portico, which is called the Portico del Paraíso. And the Portico de la Gloria in Santiago was built first, and then I believe some of the students of those artisans were then responsible for building the Portico del Paraíso. So it's almost a kind of copy of it. But within Galicia, these are the two great examples of Romanesque sculptural art. And for us to see them within just a handful of days of each other was kind of interesting. And the Portico de la Gloria in Santiago is by far the more famous one because it was the first one and because Santiago is a more famous place and it's in the Cathedral of Santiago, which is, you know, the resting place of Santiago himself. But it was one of those things where sometimes when you see two similar things, even if you see the, the lesser one first, 
then you, you might be slightly disappointed when you see the other one just a short time later. And I think mm -hmm. that was the case for me. I really liked the Portico del Paraíso in Orense. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, and then seeing something similar, but maybe slightly better a few days later, it didn't quite have the same impact on, on first glance. And I know that you were not impressed with the, the way that the whole visit took place either. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to harp on it too much, but basically in Orense, the Portico del Paraíso is just part of the cathedral. And so you go into the mm -hmm. cathedral and then you have an audio guide if you want to. So we did, and it takes you through the whole cathedral and that's one part of it. And that's kind of the way it should be. In Santiago, it's, it's certainly understandable that they want to conserve the cultural heritage and I'm all in favor of that. And so they're reducing the numbers of people that can see the Portico de la Gloria. And you know, I completely see why they want to do that and, and I'm not opposed to that conceptually. I just think the, the problem is that it's part of the cathedral, but it's been blocked off so that you can't see it. You can't go to it when you're doing a normal cathedral visit. So you're kind of robbed of, of seeing, you know, one of these great highlights of the cathedral when you're seeing the other stuff that's in the cathedral. And, you know, it would make such a great entranceway to the cathedral if you could go in through the doors that people always went in through. And this is how pilgrims would have accessed the cathedral, you know, in medieval times. The parts of the cathedral have, of course, been rebuilt since then. But, you know, that entry and then going through the portico, that's how you would have accessed the cathedral. And so now you go in in this group, you have to make an appointment for a certain time. It's not a guided tour. It feels like it should be, but it's, it's not. It's an accompanied tour. Like, you know, you have to stay with the group and you have to follow the whatever you call the person I mean it's a security guard basically yeah yeah um, and so you know they take you in and you see the portico and the portico is magnificent that's not that's not the the point here um, but you don't get any kind of tour there's no audio guide and there are no signboards uh, explaining yeah, there's it. no information in any form and so you just kind of get in your small group you just kind of get herded in and, and just it's sort of dropped there and then you just kind of look around and then virtually straight away both ourselves and then quite a few of the other people there then just got out their phones and started to look for information so that they could you know find something on the web that would explain a little bit about what the different sculptures meant um, so I just found the experience overall was not as nice as in Orense. Mm -hmm. Yeah I, I totally agree and I definitely think that they should yeah, provide some signboards or a QR code that will, you know, take you to a website that will give you some information or something like that would not be hard at all to do. And I don't know why that hasn't been done already. I knew a bit about the Portugo having read Gallego literature. It comes up and or has come up in various books that I've read. And so I knew about a couple of sculptures in particular that, you know, have legends and lore surrounding them and so I, I looked out for those. One of them was actually quite hard to get to because of the way that they've blocked off the portico from the rest of the church. So I did actually ask the security guard, oh, is that, is that this, this sculpture, the one that I'm looking for? And she's like, yes, but you know, don't get too close. You have to stay over here on this side. I agree that the visit experience was not as good as it could have been, but uh, it's still an incredibly impressive artwork to see. Absolutely. And so hopefully, you know, that was the discovery that we made in Santiago this time. Hopefully there are more discoveries for us to make in Santiago on future visits. I'm sure there are. All right. But until next time, buen camino. And bon camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com. 
and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.